Hello, everyone. I need to put this warning out before starting the podcast for this week. As always, I wanted to try to talk about the game in a way to where you reveal the plot as it's revealed in the course of the story and not spoil end game events at the beginning of the discussion. However, for this particular game, that's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to talk about the development history without doing that. It's very difficult to kind of skip over really important points to discuss and explain without doing that. So for this game in particular, I think it's important that you first beat the entire game before you come in uh, and, and watch this podcast. So I want to give that as an official spoiler warning for this video. If you have not played Hellblade, you need to do that first before watching this. It's only about six to eight hours. It's a very short game, but go ahead and beat that first and then return. Um, that way, nothing will be spoiled for you. Okay, with that out of the way, please enjoy this week's podcast. Welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name is Kason. Today we are covering Senua's Sacrifice. Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. This was initially supposed to be a one-off episode. We were just going to cover it in one episode. Yeah. Then I took like... 13 pages of notes. <laughs> um, Just start reading. It is, it's a short enough game. You could beat it like seven or eight hours. If you wanted to in one sitting if you had like a you know weekend, yeah, yeah, and weekend. just a lot of time on your hands or something. Yep. It's one of those games you can beat quickly. So there's not like a huge volume of story to cover, but it is dense. And um, there is a lot of things you can miss. I, this is your first time. Yeah, it's my first playing. time playing the full game. Yeah. So, yeah. I realized in talking to you, but also in the fact that I've now played this. This is probably my fourth time playing it. Oh, nice. That like rem going back to my first time, it's like yeah, because the story is so non-linear in mm -hmm. how it's delivered. It's it almost requires like a second. Playthrough to actually really oh get the I story. see how yeah. that's piecing because you know where it's going and so it's easier to like remember or retain the information yeah so maybe play it twice if you like <laughs> it <laughs> it'll help with some of that yeah. um, but this is one of my favorite games ever um, I think that it is uh, thematically just in in insanely ambitious for the size of the team that worked on it. I think that it has a really incredible central message. Um, and it's one that really touched me. And so I'm very excited to jump in and talk about it. But it is dense, so this will, this will probably be two episodes, at least. Yeah. Uh, another thing. <clears throat> We're gonna, I know there are some people who appreciate a longer like three hour podcast or something like that mm. um, it's not feasible for us to keep doing that it's not only just the workload is a lot more but uh, we run out of space on our SD uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, hard drives 
yeah, SSD yeah, hard yeah. drives. We have 500 gigabyte SSD hard drives. Yes. And Kaysen couldn't One fit episode. <laughs> the final episode of yeah. um, Final Fantasy Tactics on that. That's how large these files are. It was in part because it was a four hour. Because it was four hours <laughs> four long. Four hours, yeah. So, so we'll be splitting that one up into two episodes. Yes. Um, but <laughs> additionally, I just think it's, I don't know. Moving forward, we're going to try and have a really hard limit on about that one and a half hour line. Mm. Um, so things might end up being a few more episodes because of that. You know, we won't try to blow through a game like Final Fantasy Tactics in five episodes next time. <laughs> yeah. But but we don't want to go too far beyond eight or ten either. So exactly. Yeah. We're still trying to um, refine this process and like yeah, figure yeah. out the sweet spot. <laughs> so this one will probably end up being two episodes. Okay. Um, if you're new to our podcast, I, I do this every time that we start a new game because um, there's going to be kind of new people coming in who maybe haven't seen us before. Mm. We try to handle this podcast a little bit like um, a book club for video games. So yeah. it's, it's meant for you to kind of play along with us. Um, I think a good place, what I'm expecting to happen uh, is that in this first episode we'll play up to the point where Senua is crossing the bridge into Helheim. Oh, there, okay. So after having faced Valravin and, and the fire and Sirt, Mm, yeah. um, the, those two gods and like getting the, the seal broken that opens the door into Helheim. I'm expecting because we'll be covering development history today that we'll probably get about that far. Okay. And then in the second episode we'll cover the rest of the game plus some, maybe some like addressing some controversy surrounding uh, Hellblade a little bit. Um, <clears throat> so that's kind of how I'm thinking about breaking this up. So for this episode, we're going to go all the way up to that point after Valravin and Cert, and then the next episode will cover the rest of the game. So that's where you should play up to for this episode. If you've not played up to that, do so first. Otherwise, you will be getting spoiled for that okay. portion of the game. But first, we like to talk about uh, development history because in order to understand uh, and, and sort of fairly critique, you know, a game like this, it's it's good to understand the intention behind it, uh, what the developers were thinking of, what what their goals were, what their ambitions were, what they were trying to achieve, and then sort yeah. of seeing did they deliver on those things, right? I think that's good. Yeah, it, it, they're actually pretty explicit in yes. what they're trying to achieve because as you first start playing the game, there's a screen yeah. that shows. Yeah, <laughs> and it has a website to go to, and it says it tells you exactly what this game was trying to do. Yeah, and so it's more explicit than most games we play. I always like um, doing like dev history, uh, our opening dev history episode, because I'll always find little nuggets uh, where this thing is connected to something else that I had no idea. Oh yeah, it was connected to. Um, so let's just jump into that real quick. So Ninja Theory is the development studio behind Hellblade. A lot of people have probably heard the name Ninja Theory um, for like DMC, Devil May Cry, which was sort of a reboot uh, yeah. of the Devil May Cry series, was, was made by Ninja Theory. It was a very controversial Devil May Cry title. Is that the one where he's like naked? Yes, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> he has like that black short hair and yeah. they sort of like reimagined. That trailer was so funny because there was always like something conveniently right <laughs> in that area, a pizza throughout slice, the whole, or yeah, throughout the whole trailer, it was be. so funny. Um, 
Yeah, so that title was one of their big ones, but also Heavenly Sword. I don't know if you ever played that game. Um, I can't. Weta Digital no. and Andy Circus were very oh, involved no in the motion capture and oh, wow. animation for that game. It, it was a really cool That's PS3 cool. title. I really liked that mm. game back in the day. It was not a big commercial success, but mm. so they've had a couple of games like that. Um, but Hellblade was their first like real financial success. Yeah. Um, but when the company was founded, they weren't known as Ninja Theory. They were known uh, as Just Add Monsters. That was like the original name. <laughs> okay. Uh, so there were three people who sort of uh, founded this company. Uh, Tamim Antoniades, who is the director of Hellblade. Okay. And the writer mm. of Hellblade. So he's, you know, been really involved like on the creative side of things. Then you have Nina Christensen and Mike Ball. Um, and Mike Ball has been more or less involved sort of in the tech side of the company, you know, like making sure they have the right equipment that they're staying on top oh, yeah. of. Um, motion capture techniques, especially for what yeah. they did with uh, with Hellblade, which yeah. was kind of a leap in a lot very, of ways there. Yeah, very well done. Um, and Nina Christensen is, is more in a, like a producer role, uh, like executive kind of role, that sort of thing. But So that's how the three of them sort of, uh, with their roles in the company, but they're each mm. three founders. And so Just Add Monsters was the original company name. So what they were, they had no money, they had no equipment, they had Really nothing to start out with other than a company <laughs> name. The name. So they were taking a game idea that they had and they were pitching it to a lot of different publishers to get funding so that they could get started on something. Mm. And nobody bit on funding the game they wanted to make, but they had offers to buy their company. <laughs> <laughs> what the to heck? like purchase them, to acquire them. Okay. Which is funny. I don't know why. And they had not made a product yet. At not this yet. Point. They just That's had funny. a pitch. They just had a game in mind that they wanted to make. So right. what that means is people liked the idea but didn't like them. They said, I "We want so. your ideas, but we want someone else to make it. We don't think you could make the game." Well, they still otherwise made they'd it. invest in them. They what? still made the game that they pitched. <laughs> it was just that they. I don't know. It's like it's more about like controlling interest in. Because, and this is kind of a theme that's going to be going on throughout this. Mm -hmm. uh, Antoniades in particular really struggled with fighting against um, big AAA publisher mm. intervention, <clears throat> creative intervention on projects and changing right. the core of what they were mm -hmm. in order to say, no, the market wants this. So you got to make it more this way. Okay. And so Hellblade was their first self-published title Okay. Where they were no longer concerned about how many units they're going to sell or mm. that sort of thing. They were just like, we're going to make this thing the way that we believe it should be made and, and be very interested in sort of like creative integrity on this project. But like everything they had made before that was interfered with by Sony or Microsoft really? or Capcom mm. or uh, whoever else. And, and he... he talks a lot in interviews about how soul-crushing the the AAA machine was mm -hmm. as a creator. It was just like impossible to make what he wanted to make doing it the traditional route. And okay. so Hellblade was his answer to that where he was like, I don't care what the market says. I don't care about any of that. I'm just going to make this game mm -hmm. that, I, that I feel is important or, or you know, 
kind of revolutionary in certain ways. And that was the one finally that sort of broke through, right? Yeah. So anyways, they got purchased by a company called Argonaut Games. Now I did I sort of recognized that name, well, but Argonaut I didn't know 5. from where. Well, th- yeah, right. There was a script that we wrote, but um, <laughs> I remembered that name from a game I had played before, Argonauts. but I didn't know. I couldn't remember what it was from. Argonaut developed Star Fox and Star Fox Two and the SF or, and the um, FX chip yes, for Nintendo. Yes, for the SNES. Wow, Argonaut, huh? Argonaut Games was the company that. It basically developed those titles for Nintendo. Huh. Also, the first two Harry Potter games on PS1. Oh, nice. The the good ones. <laughs> uh, the uh, Philosopher's Stone and um, Chamber of Secrets. Chamber of Secrets, yeah. On oh, PS1. My wife just played those recently. Really? The yeah, PS1 versions? Both of those. Yeah, the yeah. PS1. Yeah. I think it was the PS1 versions. Um, so, I had played all of those. And I had, I, anyways, that's where I recognized the name Argonaut Games. Oh, that's but funny. they were liquidated like shortly after that. So mm. they purchased Just Add Monsters, who origi- or eventually became Ninja Theory. Um, and the game that they had wanted to make was called Kung Fu Chaos. It was, it was developed for the Xbox. Um, not a super well-known game. Um, it's got kind of this really cartoony style, sort of like a, a beat-em-up sort of game you, you mm-hmm. play like this little kung fu master guy and you're you know on platforms and you're kind of just beating people up and stuff like that not really much to write home about uh it was not necessarily like a critical or commercial success or anything like that but it was you know their first game um and they were sort of starting to work on a sequel to this um but the problem was <laughs> that Microsoft ended up getting all of the rights to the Kung Fu Chaos intellectual property because Argonaut was liquidated after this. Mm. Um, Just uh, just Add Monsters had to buy their own company back. Hmm. (laughs) It was a huge mess, but they came out of that still alive, but like they didn't Mm. like have any money really right. to like they still keep going. So they still needed slave master to, yes, yeah. to come in and fund uh, the game they're working on. So mm-hmm. they couldn't call it Kung Fu Chaos because like Xbox owned that intellectual property now. So they changed the name to something similar but then they were kind of looking at trends in the market and they were thinking, you know, I don't think, th- there, there was a real trend during this sort of like PS3, Xbox 360 era they were moving into mm-hmm. for Hyperrealism. Yes. So they were like, we should probably try to develop something with more of a realistic look to it. Mm-hmm. And so that kung fu game they were making turned into Heavenly Sword. Oh, that I mean, that looks familiar, but I guarantee you did not play this game. Yeah. I mean, not many people did, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But this is kind of what it looked like, right? Hmm. Aesthetically, I guess. Andy Serkis was a, like the villain in this game. I did play it when it came out, and I liked it. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, so Sony ended up being the ones to back this, and um, this was another one of those like negotiations where Antoniades came out feeling like his soul was crushed in really? what he had to end up negotiating or giving up. 
mm. and the the level of like freedom or creativity that they would be able to have with this, right? But there was huge ambitions for this game. Um, so it was almost like a last option. It was like Sony, what Sony was offering them was like the last option on the table. They were like, if we could go any other route other than that, we'll take that. But they couldn't make it work. And he described the negotiating process as being a soul-destroyingly difficult process. <laughs> Artists, um, man. In terms of what he had to, you know, sort of like give up yeah. as part of that deal, right? You just want to be an artist and just be an artist, but you can't. You gotta. Yes, it's tough. <laughs> uh, yeah. Their ambitions were really sky high for this, though. They wanted mm. to make it into a multimedia franchise. Oh, really? They wanted to have like a movie. They wanted to mm, have all kinds of different things. And that's why they were going to Weta Digital and working yeah. with Andy Serkis. And it was like a, there was a lot of plans for this, right? It had really incredible animation quality for the time because of the motion capture technology they were using. Um, but Sony ended up interfering heavily in the creative process. And so a lot of things were changed, a lot of things were cut. The game did not come out like they had hoped it would. Really? It was still mostly well received. It was, you know, kind of like an aggregate in the 80s, like low 80s. Okay. Um, Score-wise. But it was, it, it bombed. Uh, it just did not sell well at all, and so that weird. With that backing, you'd think it would have. I know, did it, right? I don't know. That's interesting. Yeah, it, it's because it wasn't marketed well, and the same yeah. thing was the problem with with the Microsoft deal when they were under Argonaut Games for the Kung Fu Chaos. They didn't market it. They yeah. just didn't market it well enough. Hmm. They did not put the money into the marketing, and, and a lot of times that's really what it takes to succeed. It's it's how how well did you market the thing? It, whether it's a bad or a good product, if you market it well enough, it will sell. And so it's just a matter of whether they're willing to put the risk and the money into marketing it, right? And they didn't do a good enough job on that. And so all of those plans for Heavenly Sword, you know, because they were already working on a sequel, they were like already getting the wheel rolling on some other stuff, and Sony just kind of shut it all down. And so as part of the deal that they had made, they lost all of their in-house technologies. Oh, really? As part of their contract with, with Sony uh, oh. for this. So they huh. were back to like square one oh again. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was gonna say, oh, that makes sense. They got all this stuff from Weta and then that's how they did their motion capture. <laughs> no. Nope. Unbelievable. They, f they lost a ton of it. And again, he describes it as a heartbreaking moment, right? It was just like another big failure so from there, they wow. went on to make another, you know, fairly decent-sized game in Enslaved Odyssey to the West. A lot of people haven't heard of this either. Mm -mm, nope. Because it didn't sell that well, but this is kind of what it looked like. I remember seeing copies of this in game stores, and it has like a little bit of um, like a Horizon feel to it. It's like a, like uh, a technology, okay, huh. but like sort of a sci-fi thing going on you know it, it, you see like all these like jungle lands but it's sort of like mixed in with like these robots and uh, things like that that'll like chase you around anyways I remember seeing this game back in the day but I didn't really have like a ton of interest in playing it um, again it was kind of like middling reviews maybe like high 70s low 80s and it, it didn't sell well but the really interesting thing is that they collaborated on this game with Alex Garland 
who is probably not like a name you'll recognize immediately, but you will recognize his work. So he started as a British novelist um, who wrote The Beach. That was an, an, uh, a, hmm. eventually adapted into a film starring Leonardo DiCaprio in like, oh. 2003. Oh, really? But then he went on to hmm. write the screenplays for 28 Days Later. Oh, of course. Sunshine. Nice. Oh, nice. And then he, his, the direct, Murphy his directorial debut was Ex Machina. Oh, really? Which won a ton that of Academy Awards. That was like Awards. just a few years ago. Wow. It was like 2014 or 15 or something okay, like that. Okay, okay. It's wow. a phenomenal movie. Well, yeah, and it looks the like perfect. Yeah. The CG looks perfect. It's a fantastic film. I, I, yeah. I love that movie. And that was his directorial debut. Wow. So he's really good. Okay, of Alex course. Garland. So he collaborated with them on this game, Enslaved Odyssey to the West. He, like, wrote it. Hmm. Um, and, again, Antonio uh argued a lot with him. They disagreed <laughs> on a lot of things. He found him very intimidating to work with, he yeah. says. Um, hmm. It's not like they had a bad relationship because they did collaborate on other projects later as well. So okay. it's not like you know this was a one-off thing. They didn't thing. Like burn bridges. But it was a difficult creative process between the two of them working together. Was, they struggled to like get on the same page. Hmm. Um, and even though the game had a much smaller budget than like Heavenly Blade, it still didn't perform well. And so the next game that they made was DMC Devil May Cry, which was a contract uh, from Capcom. So Capcom came to them and said, we'd like you to do a reboot of our Devil May Cry series. Because they really liked the quality of the work they had done on Heavenly Sword. Mm. But it was like, you know, they just hadn't had that commercial success yet. But that wasn't necessarily right. their fault. It was a lack yeah. of marketing, mostly. Um, so they worked on another company's IP yes. next that already mm -hmm. had like a, an audience, right? So right. it's like, okay, hey, what can you do with this? Right, exactly. So Capcom gave them that chance. Um, and it was a highly successful game, hmm. but it was also a highly controversial game. It was, it was sure. rated well. I think it was mostly well received by the, like, the general gaming audience, but like the hardcore Devil May Cry fans were sending death threats to Antodiades. <laughs> well, of course they were. <laughs> they were pissed. Uh, they did funny. not like the choices made for this game. Really? I remember that. I remember... Because, I, I mean, I've, I've had some exposure to Devil May Cry. I played the original on PS1. I played a little bit of 3. Um, good friend of mine, Brad Woods, he loved oh, those right. Devil May Cry games, so oh, he had them all yeah. on PlayStation oh, 2. Nice. So I'd go to his house and play them a little bit. Um, I had also played... Devil May Cry 4, which I believe 4 came before DMC. And then, yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Um, if I'm not, I'll correct myself later. But um, I remember kind of looking into this and being like, okay, like what's going on with this? And ooh, Ninja Theory developing mm. this, not Capcom. What's, what's up with that? And uh, anyways, a lot of DMC fans did not like the choices they made, the ch changes to the character... Um, and and Antoniadis did sure. not make it easy on himself. Like, well, he's, he's wanted to change the character. <laughs> his responses to some of that feedback were like, the character that you like, the white-haired, mm. like that was a, that was cool in like two thousand two or whatever. But this is cool now, and people were like, right. no, it's not, and they <laughs> freaked out at him, right? So he didn't handle the pub, yeah. like uh, the PR very well on that, right? Sure. So he took a lot of heat for that. But in any case, um, 
they started to really uh, diversify their portfolio at this point. It was like mm. they were getting into like, okay, we're going to have some of our employees d working on like mobile titles and, you know, doing some contracted work there and, yeah. you know, kind of like putting their hands in a lot of different uh, jars at that point. But they had one sort of special unit, one small team mm. that they were like, we want to publish our own game. So, in a sense, it's an indie title, right? Sure, yeah. It's not going to have a big budget, but we want this to look like a AAA game. So, the production right. value needs to be here, mm -hmm. but the scope of the game is more of something you'd see in the indie. It's got to be a lot more linear. It's got to be shorter. Yeah. yeah. So, that they created a, a business sort of model around this that they called Indie AAA. Mm. And that was sort of like their whole concept for triple I, indie, indie, indie. That was their whole concept for this game, their original IP, Hellblade: Senua's Sacrifice, that they started working on, and they just had like fifteen to twenty people working on this. Mm. So a really small team, while they were doing all this other stuff, right at the same time, and a lot of that stuff didn't work out. They were like, "Yo, man, the mobile space, how." Uh, competitive this is and there's like oh, a whole right. learning curve and how to like go about doing this and the mm -hmm. market's very different and so th th they were kind of again they were really struggling as a company they had a lot of good experience and they'd made some pretty good games up to this point but they just hadn't had like a real hit yeah and Hellblade was the one that like really did it for them right so that's kind of the background on the company itself, on Ninja Theory and like where they were at the time leading up to this. Um, again, uh, Tamim Antoniades is the writer and director on Hellblade. And what he wanted to do was pretty ambitious. Because <laughs> um, the, the, the project started out as just sort of like, you know, kind of your common hero's tale mixed in with some like Norse mythology. Okay. Wanted it to take place like in our world instead of in like some fantasy, you know, world that they just mm -hmm. created or something like that. But it wasn't until they got a little bit into the writing process on that, that he started to think, you know, what if this character had um, symptoms of mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. this, this would work based on like where we're going with the story uh, for her to be really like struggling with hallucinations and voice hearing and some of these other things. Um, yeah. I think that this would strengthen what we're doing with this character where we're ultimately going with the story. But he learned very quickly how ignorant he was on exactly <laughs> how to portray a character like that. Oh, sure. And like what yeah, it's like easy. to live with those symptoms. And right. there's just a whole lot of research that needed to be done. Um, so they ended up, uh, I guess what he, what he says here is, uh, he admits that he didn't have to look very far to discover his own ignorance of the subject. To portray psychosis properly, Ninja Theory consulted with leading neuroscientists and nonprofit organizations like Welcome trust to properly capture the experience of psychosis and its devastating effects on the human mind. He learned that people can experience hallucinations and delusional beliefs without it being a problem. 
The illness comes when those experiences cause suffering. Often the recovery is not about curing yourself of hallucinations, but finding ways to live with them. That was a revelation to me. Um, up here, you know, he says, it's easy to see the pain and suffering caused by physical disease or physical trauma. It's not so easy to see the mental suffering or trauma or severe, or for severe mental illness. But what if we could find a way to see it? Games are capable of drawing you in for hours on end, playing the role of a character who's different from you, experiencing their perspective, and actively involving you in a world that functions with a different set of rules. There are many things that happen in the world of Hellblade that make perfect sense within the context of Senua's mind. To complete Senua's quest, you have to internalize and accept the logic and meaning behind these things to progress. So this became an attempt for them to show neurotypical people what it is like to experience some of the symptoms of psychosis. Mm. The hallucinations they see, um, the hyper like pareidolia, the voice hearing, like how do we represent that accurately to somebody who has no concept of what these people actually go through, right? right. And it became like really important to them that they get that right. So they went to Peter Fletcher um, and, and a lot of other people uh, to, to get help on how do we like portray this pro uh, properly. They talked to a lot of people um, who actually do suffer from, from these symptoms and they explained it to them and, and they would you know, try to create it in the game and then show it to them. Oh, okay. Did we accurately portray this? And they'd say, no, like you should change it like this or yes, that's exactly like how it is for me. So it was like a lengthy process of, of consulting in order to like try to really get it right. Um, so, hmm. on top of this, um, the, they wanted to portray sort of like a time in history that you don't see a lot. Um, so this is like 8th century uh, Celtic culture we're talking yeah, about yeah. here. And there's not really like a ton known about it in terms of like archaeology and things like that. They've no. learned more recently. But like this particular group of people, the Picts, the in Picts. the far northern uh, like yeah. the Orkney Islands, like way mm. far British uh, islands up here, like at the very, very northern tip. Um, these people were eventually like raided by the Vikings and it's like unknown what really happened to them. Whether the Vikings completely wiped them out or whether they sort of ass just assimilated them, right? They just well, kind of became one I can people. tell you what probably happened. <laughs> <laughs> Based on the yeah, the uh, reputation of the Vikings. Yeah, well they killed the men and then brought the women back. So yeah. it's like a little of both. Yes. They would, the women of the Picts would have survived. Yes. And born Viking sons and daughters, whereas the men Picts were slaughtered. <laughs> right. That's likely what happened, yeah. Well, and then, you know, the Vikings did a lot of sacrifice, the human sacrifice to yep. the gods. Yep. They were very, very brutal yeah. warrior people. Yeah. And so this is, was kind of like the setting he had decided on, right, was mm -hmm. to have a Pict warrior. Um, Suffering from a Norse invasion. Yes. Kind of picking who, up the pieces of their life. Who yeah. also suffers from severe mental illness yeah. and psychosis, which is a really unique thing. Like, yes, uh, you've never so. seen this before. No, I haven't. 
I haven't in anything, but particularly yeah. in video games. Right, right, Nothing yeah. like this had ever been done, so it's really yeah. cool. But like some background and history on the Picts, um, they had actually avoided the Roman Empire for a long time. Like the Romans tried to conquer them. The Romans had like the South and like England. Yeah. But they didn't have as much of. They the couldn't conquer yeah, them. Yeah. Like they were yeah. a really uh, well. They would have been described by the Romans as yeah. savages. Oh, of course. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, barbarians. Barbarians. Right? Yep. Yep. Um, but they built a wall. They like built a wall like across, uh, uh, like way in the north. What's the area called? I think I wrote it down. Is it near Scotland? Yeah. So Hadrian's Wall is what it's called. And it's still there. I mean, you can still like see it today, right? It was, and this was built by the Romans to like, <laughs> so it's like right here. I can pull this up. Ah, uh, so they not built. quite to Scotland, but close. Hadrian's Wall, and they were just like, "You people, stay the fetch away from us," because yeah. <laughs> they couldn't, That's they could hilarious. not conquer them. They were like really, really like um, fierce warriors, yeah. the Picts, and mm -hmm. so they were able to avoid assimilation into the Roman Empire um, until the Vikings showed up. <laughs> yeah, yes, and this was in the late eighth, eighth century. Um, so. Quote here from Antoniatis, the original idea for Hellblade was to create a classic hero's journey, a journey of suffering, but one where the fantasy world is not another planet or alternate universe, but a world that is constructed in Senua's mind. But to do so would mean putting psychotic mental illness at the center stage of the experience, a subject that is still considered taboo and a challenge that is both terrifying and exciting in equal measure. Um, I came to learn that the Celts had a sophisticated and nuanced perspective on the nature of mental disorder. One term they used was gelt. A gelt is a man or woman who had been driven mad by a curse, battle trauma, or grief. The gelt would take to a life in the woods in search of penance, punishment, and purgation. And so Senua became a gelt, cursed by darkness, looking for redemption in the wilds. Hmm. So that's what they would do when someone would exhibit maybe similar symptoms to what Senua had. It's like, oh, yeah. this person's cursed. They have to go purge that curse by living alone in the wilderness and sure. like, you know, uh, finding like penance from the gods or something like that, right? Yes. So that served as a big influence for like how the story developed for Senua here. Um, another word the Celts used in reference to mental disorders was druth, meaning fool or liar. One who utters the words of God. Uh, they tell of the mad sinner who flees battle into exile and takes on a beastly nature, growing feathers on his body. The character called Druth in Hellblade is based on a little-known person called Findon, an 8th century Irish Celt who was captured and enslaved by the Vikings, but eventually escaped to Orkney where he became a monk. So Druth is a character, is like a mentor character throughout the game yeah. for Senua. And, and yeah. there's a specific story with Druth where he... Well, with fin Findel, Finden, 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 this character, yeah, um, where Finden has to escape through fire, a yeah. trial, and mm -hmm. is reborn as Druth, Druth mm -hmm. after the trial, and Senua kind of has to recreate that herself. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So uh, let's see. He says here. So the stage was set for a new adventure, a journey into an, the Norse underworld called Hell. 
a vision quest fueled by madness and myth, a fantasy that was created by Senua's mind, and one that we would experience through her eyes. So that was kind of like the concept. They sort of like resolved mm -hmm. on that concept. Um, there has been some criticism of Hellblade and its representation of mental illness. Um, I don't want to get into that in the first episode. I want to like actually get through the game so that everyone has played it okay. and like knows the whole story before we go into that. But I do want people sure. to know that that is like something I really want to dive into and give a very fair look to. Um, because there are some good points that have been raised by people who suffer from some of these symptoms and when they played Hellblade they were not, they did not feel that their experience was accurately represented mm. in spite of all that they did to try their very best. I mean consulting with people who had right. those symptoms, who lived with those symptoms and with professionals who work with those people mm -hmm. and scientists who study this, right? They, they really, really tried and, and they were very well intentioned in trying their best to be accurate and to um, validate people's experiences. But there are some people who feel they failed at that. And I do want to like give that its fair due. But I, I, I want to bring that up in episode two at the end okay. after we've actually played through the whole game. So I just want you to know we are going to cover that. Um, but n just not today. Uh, he goes on to say here, to make a game about a warrior with psychotic mental illness as its central theme was fraught with danger, for the reasons we just explained. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mental illness, such as psychosis, is still taboo and rarely acknowledged in a century of cinema, never mind the new medium of games. Where it, where it does feature, it often conflates psychosis and psychopathy, which is associated with a lack of empathy. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that these two words sound so similar that they are used interchangeably in media, because they are not the same thing, right, right at all. Mm -hmm. I must admit that I didn't have to look very far to discover my own ignorance on the subject, right? So he reached out to Paul Fletcher, psychiatrist and professor of health and neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. And this is what Paul Fletcher describes psychosis as. Psychosis is a descriptive term, and it refers to having a loss of contact with objective reality. It's characterized by two main sets of symptoms. One of them is hallucinations, where somebody experiences perceptions when there is no actual objective thing out there to perceive. And the other is delusions, where somebody comes to often very bizarre, unpleasant, frightening beliefs when there's no good evidence in favor of them. So that's a pretty good summary of what the symptoms of psychosis are all about. It mm. is losing touch with objective reality Right. And because of those things, you develop these beliefs or delusions um, without really having good evidence for them. So we're going to talk about the ways in which Senua like exhibits those two parts of it, the delusions and then the, the, the breaks with objective reality as we get into the game proper. Okay. Wellcome is a biomedical research charity, right? They spend billions of dollars on research and awareness programs that are aimed on improving mental health. This is one of the organizations they reached out to. Uh, we have, I, I, it's a hard name to pronounce, I think it's Ian, Ian Dodgen? Ian maybe? Uh, it's just spelled kind of funny. Uh, yeah, that's how Ian McGilchrist spells his name too. Actually. Ian, okay, so, so Ian, Ian Dodgen, I think. Yeah. 
who said mental health hasn't always been presented in the media in a way that is particularly helpful. It can be challenging to engage people with the subject matter, and there are a lot of preconceived ideas about mental health and particularly schizophrenia and psychosis. So we hope our support allows the team to continue to collaborate with Paul Fletcher and with those who have experience of psychosis to create the game that provides a fresh perspective on the condition and allows audiences to engage with it in a way that just wouldn't be possible in any other medium. So the people who were involved in this, mm -hmm. that was really a big goal for them. They wanted yeah. to represent it accurately. They knew that media does not typically portray this in a way that is helpful. Mm -hmm. They often, like uh, Antoniadis was saying, they, they conflate psychopathy. So they'll just show these people clawing at walls or being these villainous, like, uh, you know, people who have total lack of empathy. And yeah, yeah. that's not what people with psychosis are going through. These people are perfectly capable of empathy. Mm -hmm. um, they just see things and hear things, and, and it, it, it makes it tough for them to understand what's real and what's not. Yes. And it can create delusions, and it's, it's a really horrifying thing for many of these people to live through. He describes some of the things <laughs> that, these, that these people um, suffer through. Anyways, he, he was talking about how there was a girl that they had talked to who 24-7, there's a person screaming at her all day long mm -hmm. and banging on her door and walls. This person lives with that constantly. Wow. A, a woman just screaming at her all the time. I mean, just imagine for a moment, like, what that would be like to live your entire life with that voice. Right, yeah. Always, 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 always around you. Um, there, they, they described another woman who saw corpses, would see corpses hanging all the time. And mm. they were so vivid and so real that you would rush and try to like help them down, like try to like, you know, cut oh, them yeah. down and stuff. Yeah. Like, it's just, the game, the, I think what the game was setting out to do was raise awareness to this fact and create empathy for, the f for this type of life experience yeah. with neurotypical people, people who don't have any idea what this is like mm. and who maybe see the word psychosis and conflate it with psychopathy right, and right. think it's something totally different than what it really is, right? right? That's what creates the taboo and the stigma and that stigma is what makes life so hard for these people. It's sure. not so much the symptoms themselves, which they've lived with their whole lives and it's like they, they understand that, they live with that, it's part of every day for them, but it's the way they're treated, it's the way they're seen, it's the way that, that their mm -hmm. lives are stigmatized that yeah. causes like the real harm. Right. And I think what this game was setting out to do was to like inform people a little, little bit more about that, give them a character they could relate to, put them in that lived experience a little bit, and, and try to destigmatize that. So I think that that's really noble as like sure, a goal. Sure, sure, yeah. Whether or not they were wholly successful, I mean, I don't think it was ever going to be possible for them no. to perfectly accomplish that. No, of right? course not. Um, but I, I have some things to say about that. I'll probably go sure. towards the criticism end, so sure. we can talk about that later. Okay. Um, but Carl Jung was very interested in these types of people, people with psychosis specifically. Yeah. Because they lived their life in a lucid, dreamlike state, like all right. the time. And they had access to a part of their subconscious that nobody else does. So he would gain a lot of insight 
into how the brain works from people who had different forms of psychosis. Right. So, yeah, that's cool. So, um, they also collaborated with Professor Charles Ferniho, how maybe Ferniho, who is a leading expert in voice hearing in particular. He's at uh, Durham University. Um, and this was really interesting because I have an experience that I, I have not shared with a lot of people. I, I've shared it once on my Discord recently but it's because I was sort of like looking into this game. I don't know if I've told you this story, so it'll be interesting to talk about. <laughs> we'll see. Um, but what he says here is hearing voices is an experience that is usually associated with severe mental illness. Crucially, we know that hearing voices is a part of ordinary life for many people who don't meet the criteria for mental illness. Sure. We know voices vary according to where they appear in space. Voices can appear far away. In the distance, they can appear right there in your ear. They can seem to be coming from inside your head. So this is where they decided to record the voice hearing that Senua hears in the game using a binaural microphone. Yeah, yeah. Which is like set up with like two mics at about the same width as your ears on your head. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the actors would then move around the mics and it would give you a sense that these voices are moving around you in space so they're coming yeah, really yeah. close and then like going away and then getting right up into your ear and they're all up in your space and then they're moving around yeah, you, yeah. like a really disorienting sense. Which is why they recommend that you play the game with headphones right at the sure. beginning. They're like, play the game with headphones because you won't right. have the same experience otherwise it like requires that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so if you're gonna play the game, make sure that you play it with headphones. Um, but so, I, was, I, I came across that quote, right? Crucially, we know that hearing voices is a part of ordinary life for many people who don't meet the criteria for mental illness. Sure. So, when I was 18, um, I had an experience where I woke up in the middle of the night. It, it was one of those things where you wake up and you're like, oh no, is it like time to wake up and go to work? Mm -hmm. I'm still tired, I hope it's not like seven yeah, o'clock yeah, sure, yet. Sure, yeah. So I was turning toward the clock and it was like 2 a.m. I was like, yes, I get to go back to sleep kind mm -hmm. of a thing, right? So I was conscious. This was not like a half dream state or anything like that. Okay. I was fully aware, I was fully awake. Um, this was not anything like, because I have had like sleep paralysis. Yes. And I've I'm seen the, that, yeah. the sleep paralysis demon people talk about. Yeah, that's I've rough. seen that a lot. Yeah. Um, and that was more like in my early 20s. I experienced that pretty frequently. Yeah. I haven't so much in oh, recent really? times. It's oh, sort of like stopped happening to me as I got mm. into my 30s. But I would have sleep paralysis almost like once a month um, from maybe age like 22 to 25, somewhere in that range. Yeah. I, it was like all the time. Mm. And it's, it's, it's like a horrifying thing, dude. It's like yeah. you cannot move. I experienced not only being able to not move, but not being able to breathe. Yes. So I, for like 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute. I had that. I had that when I was younger. Um, elementary school aged or something. Yeah. I And I could never explain it. It's like you forget how to breathe. Yes. Like you know technically you know what to do to breathe, but you open your mouth or you'll try to breathe and it just won't happen. And then after a while, all of a sudden it just, <gasps> just, it just, it just hits and you can breathe. And you're like, it's, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's so scary. That happened scary. to me a lot. That hasn't happened to me in... 20 years probably. It, it's so scary because you can't, you cannot control your body at all. Yeah, yeah. You are completely paralyzed. 
your mouth, your hands, your your yeah. lungs, like everything is paralyzed. Part so of that. you can't call out for help. Yes, you can't be yes. like, oh, you can't, can't talk, breathe. you can't do anything. Nothing. You're just laying there completely and, helpless. And part of that is because your brain separates from your body when you sleep. Yes, the right? deep sleep yeah. cycle. And it, your brain literally, it just disconnects and you can't do anything. It has to reconnect and sometimes you'll wake up before it's done that. Yes. <laughs> and that's just, that's freaky. In and a healthy sleep cycle, you'll go from light sleep to REM sleep to deep sleep and then you go back out again several yeah, times yeah, through yeah. the night. You kind of go in and out of it, in and out of it. Yeah. When you're in that deep sleep, everybody experiences this. They just don't know it. Yeah. You are paralyzed in you deep sleep. You can't move. Yeah. Your brain has like disconnected from yeah, the yeah. body. You're not moving. You're yeah. paralyzed in that state. And you can't move. So when you experience sleep paralysis consciously, your brain woke up, but it did not come out of that paralysis yet. Yeah. And so you're just... What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? You're yeah. thinking this, right? Like, holy crap, I can't move. What's happening? Yeah. Um, in my experience, I had a couple times where I couldn't breathe, too. It, it wasn't always that way. Sometimes I could breathe fine, but I couldn't speak. I couldn't move. Um, this is a big tangent on sleep paralysis, but mm -hmm. the point is uh, your brain can do some really, really messed up stuff to you. Of course, yeah. And it can become really easy, particularly... We're, we live in a more secular society today yes. that understands a lot more about how the brain works. Yes. So, like, you can get on Google and find out, like, what was this happened what to me? What was this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happened here? Right. And you can learn about what happened to you, right? Now imagine an 8th century <laughs> picked, picked person yeah. experiencing something like that. How would they explain that, right? right? So, anyways, yeah. my, my experience with the voice hearing that I had, I turned back away from the clock. And I all of a sudden went paralyzed. I couldn't After? move. Yes. I was still awake. That's different. Huh. And all of a sudden I was just frozen. And then I felt, physically felt, a sensation moving up my spine like a snake or an eel, like slithering around my spine. And I was oh, like, dude. what is happening? What is happening? What is happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started to bore into my skull. And it got in, and it was swimming around in my head. And that's I was like, what the no. freak is happening? Yeah, that's a live dream. That's very interesting. And then I heard a voice, but not from inside my head, from mm. outside. Yeah. The, the sensation was from outside, as if the person was standing next to my ear, mm -hmm. speaking to me, saying all of these weird, creepy, prophetic things to me. Mm. And it lasted maybe about a minute or so. And then it all kind of stopped. And even I, a person in the modern age, was like, I just got spoken to by a demon. Sure, <laughs> sure. What the freak is happening? Yes. <laughs> I like ran upstairs and like, oh my gosh, like I just like had contact with a freaking demon. <laughs> well, and, it, and in many ways you really did. And, but here, here's an interesting thing. You know, in um, India, in um, Hindu... Uh, what would you call it? Like religion, there is the idea of a, of a snake that wraps itself around your spinal column. Oh, really? Yeah, and comes up into your mind. So other people have had that experience well, before. <laughs> what you just described is literally written down in like Hindu scripture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a thing. That so and depending on how you define demon, whether this is. Uh, um, what is it? Uh, uh, collective unconscious, or whether this is right. just something that 
your brain will do to you. It's just your brain can malfunction sometimes and yeah. do weird stuff to you. And this is something that's happened to a lot of people, obviously, it seems, in India. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that happened to me like once in my life. And it was yeah. like a, 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 a life changing experience. At least it felt that way at the time. Right. Like I was like, what is happening? Like I, f I felt like. Uh, I was going to be visited again, or like, like, like this was right. going to happen more often. And what? How am I going to deal with this kind of oh, a but thing? But it didn't. No, never again. Not like that. Okay. Even though the voice told me it would come again, um, huh. it never ended up coming again. So, and, and it gave me a specific date and everything, and that didn't happen. Oh, so, I see. I see. Anyways, I had that experience one time, a mm. single minute-long experience, right? And it was like sh just totally shook me. Now imagine there are people who live with that every day of their lives. Right, right. So you're afraid to sleep, so then you become sleep deprived, then you start hallucinating during the daytime. It just builds. And like sure. after reading that and thinking about that, all of a sudden I just had all yeah, of this wild. empathy right. for people who experience things of that kind every single yeah. day of their lives. So my wife, for years and years and years, she worked professionally. Um, as a therapist with people with um, who who to the point where they cannot function yeah. well in society have have severe mental illness yeah and um, there are I have some stories throughout the game of some similarities I've noticed I can't you know I'm not gonna say anybody's name or anything but, <laughs> sure. but I a lot of this is quite familiar to what she, she would described describe um, especially finding symbolism and meaning in things that maybe aren't really there mm. um, and seeing things from, anyways, it's, um, this, this game definitely, for a, but it's a specific type of psychosis. So I feel like certain people who didn't have quite this experience um, may be critical in saying this isn't what it's like, but it's like, well, it'd probably be different, a little different for everybody, right? Yeah. And so this would be an example of a specific type um, in a specific situation, as opposed to something that anyone with any kind of mental illness can look at and say that this represents them, you know? Exactly. So, um, this is the type of thing that they were trying to represent. Mm. They didn't want to go too far with it. They didn't want to misrepresent it. They didn't want to, yeah. you know, be insensitive about it. It's, it's a, a delicate very thing. Very delicate They're thing. They're walking a, with. a thin line. A big yeah. risk that they took. Yeah. And they really put the work in. They really tried their hardest to do it right. Um, uh, quote here, it's very hard to represent what this experience is like, partly because it's such a personal, intense, emotional experience. It's a testament to how Ninja Theory have been listening to what the researchers are saying, but also crucially listening to the experts by experience. What they've mm -hmm. come up with is so compelling, it's by far the best representation I've heard of what these experiences are like. So I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. We've mostly got kind of the, the, the important bits of like what they were you know, trying to do with this game, right? like what the goals were, how much work they put into it. Yeah. There's, a whole, um, there's a whole like about 30 minute documentary that they made. It's actually in the bonus features of Senua's Sacrifice. So oh, okay. if you have the game, you can just go watch this little video. And a lot of these quotes I've copied down are directly from that. 
Okay, it's, nice. it's like a really, really in-depth sort of behind the scenes like making of little feature. Um, and so I definitely recommend people go check that out to like kind of get the full story behind it. Um, there are some things that we'll be returning to when we talk about the criticism portion of this in the second episode I was talking about. Uh, yes. I, I have some uh, quotes here in red that I think address some of the things that were brought up either um, in ways that I think are defensible or in other ways that are like, yeah, I, I see the point here, but sure, this might not sure. have been handled perfectly. Yeah. So we'll go over those then. Perfect. But the other thing I wanted to talk about, so we have the hallucinations, the voice hearing, but pareidolia is like another big thing. Because it, 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 it's basically how all the puzzles in this game, because there's a lot of puzzles in the game, yeah. it's basically all based around this idea of pareidolia. So pareidolia is something like basically everybody does, but there are some, particularly those who suffer with some of these symptoms that have like this really heightened sense of it. And I think this is what you were just describing. Seeing symbols. Yes. Yeah. Seeing, um, yep. so like if you're looking at the clouds, right, and you see faces in the clouds, you see like a dinosaur, yeah. you're seeing these shapes and you're like attributing meaning to them. Yes. That's more or less like the idea of pareidolia, right? So. Pareidolia is the tendency per, for perception to impose a meaningful interpretation on a nebulous stimulus, usually visual, so, uh, so that one sees an object pattern or meaning where there is none. Common examples are perceived images of animals, faces, or objects in cloud formations, seeing faces in inanimate objects, or lunar uh, pareidolia, like the man in the moon or the moon rabbit. The concept of pareidolia may extend to include hidden messages in recorded music played in reverse or at a higher or lower than normal speed. Depending on how sensitive you are to <laughs> yeah. that stuff, you will, you will notice things. Yeah. yeah. And hearing voices mainly indistinct or music in random noise such as that produced by air conditioners or fans. So this is the idea mm. behind pareidolia, right? That's the concept of it. And some of these people who suffer with these symptoms have a really heightened sense for this. So they're always seeing a pattern or a meaning in something. And, and even people who are not, who, who are not um, suffering with psychosis, I do know some people who do have like a really heightened sense for this. Um, so Christine, she's always mm -hmm. seeing things like this. Oh, do you see the face in the, oh, yeah. and I'm like, huh? Like I'm squinting, like I'm really trying to like look at it. Yeah, it's right there. Like these are the eyes and this is the, the mouth and this is the jaw. And I've always like, been bad Okay, at those. like I guess I see what you're looking at. Do you remember <laughs> those books or I think they used to put them in maybe magazines back in the day where it was just a static image. Yeah, but if you, if you go cross-eyed, you'll see a 3D, you'll yeah, see something. Yeah. I could never do those. Oh really? In part because of I have oh, an issue with one right. of my eyes where I, I actually don't see well out of my left eye. So going cross-eyed was like, no, it didn't, I still saw normally anyways. It was very yeah. strange. So those never worked, but I feel like it's similar to that. Yeah. You've got the static image, but if you look at it just right, you can see this like glorious like, you yeah. know, picture. Yeah, like I, painting. I wonder what happened to those because I, I it was, was big real, for like three I years. I really liked that because <laughs> I could do it. I couldn't. It was kind of cool. And actually, now that I think about it, that's really similar to some of the puzzles in this game where it's like there's pieces of an image of like a, a, a flight of stairs, but you have to look at it from uh, yeah. just the right angle just to the bring right it angle. into view. But yes. like at, at any other angle, it just looks like weird fractals and right. like, like broken mirror almost like exactly. sort of... Uh, images that are like scattered around in the environment it's like whoa what's happening there right but if you j look at it just right it's like oh there's 
you know, a picture that comes together. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that's pareidolia. That's like another big thing. Well, do you know what that is though when you're doing that? You are taking the 3D and you're making it 2D, basically. Yeah. You're bringing something from a higher dimension down into a more simple dimension. So uh. once you see everything from a certain perspective and it's like, oh, there it is. It's all 3D up until that point and then you flatten it out. Yeah. And you make it a 2D thing. Yeah. It's interesting. It's right. a literal practice of bringing a third dimension thing into your mind at least, making it 2D. And then, then you can comprehend it better. And then you can go do what you need to do. Right. Yeah, it's cool stuff. There's a line from the game that I took down that illustrates this tendency for Senua. I think it's just the narrator who's sort of that, that woman voice that you hear. One of the voices, but the one who's like the pro, uh, predominant one. Yeah. She says, when she was younger, she would lay in the grass and stare at the clouds. And there she saw them, elusive, shifting faces. After a while, she could see the faces everywhere, in the trees, in the mountains, the caves. I wonder, can you see the faces too? They're there if you look for them. Mm -hmm. And this is where she sees her mother. She's always seeing her in a waterfall or yeah, in the side yeah. of a cliff face yeah. or something like that. She's seeing her mother's face and she speaks to her mother as you're going throughout the game. And she's seeing them in these patterns in caves Just and in mountains and in, in nature, yeah. right? Yep. So that was, I thought was a really interesting line that sort of illustrates this idea of pareidolia. Um, it's also the, the mother goddess that's hidden in the chaos of nature. Yeah, Paul Fletcher described this as, people begin to see patterns in the world. They begin to link things that most people wouldn't link. Most of these things we might think would be coincidence or not worth commenting on. Nevertheless, that might have a particular salience or importance to them. Um, one individual described how everyday words, sounds, colors, and objects were steeped in meaning to him, forming a strange and sinister puzzle that he was determined to solve but could not quite get to the bottom of. I mean, mm -hmm. This person just every day seeing meaning in things that we would all just take for granted, right? And, and yes. this is... Someone put this here and saying for you can't a reason. Quite get to the bottom of it. I've got to like, I've got to solve it. This, yeah. this there's, there's something here that someone's trying to tell me, right? So, That's this person's dealing with that every day, thinking yeah. I got to solve this problem. Like someone's trying to tell me something. The like, hardest part about that is that, at, the, at least the way it's described here and elsewhere, as I'm going to mention, um, is that you feel like you're on the edge of discovering it. Yes, you're you're about to discover it. Yes. So it's not just that it's there, but that you're oh my gosh, you're it's, one clue, I'm so you're close, right there, <laughs> and you're going to crack the code. Yeah, this happens with to people with well, maybe not all. Hashtag not all. <laughs> <laughs> people with epilepsy. Yeah. Um, I have heard epilepsy described uh, when people can sense that an epileptic seizure is oncoming, is about to, to hit. Their mind starts to open in, in the strangest way and they start to kind of see things in a, in a different perspective. And it's almost as if, so the way this was described um, was that they're on the verge of the most important discovery of mankind and that their things are finally making sense to them and yeah. then everything goes black and then yeah. they wake up and then they can't they can't get there again how but but you're on the verge how frustrating of, a life yes would that be that's just constant and you're always like on the edge you're like i'm i'm this close this close and that's why you can't give it up because it's like yeah. you're just this close. You yeah. can't. You can't stop. Not even even if they wanted to, they probably couldn't. But I'm just saying, that makes it so much worse when you feel right. like you're right there on the cusp. 
Yeah, he, Paul Fletcher goes on to say, it's not brain dysfunction. It's not like the system shut down. It's actually an incredibly creative process. Yes, this is why Carl Jung studied these people so yeah. heavily because they're like, this is the creative processes of the brain being manifest at its most extreme. Yeah. And that's what interested Carl Jung more than yeah. anything else. So he dealt right. with these types of patients. The person creates a world populated with voices and phantoms and terrors, and they're completely immersed in it. They believe in it. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's not like the brain's malfunctioning. It's like hyper-functioning. Yes. In yeah, this yeah. way, right? In that way, yeah. Which is a really interesting way of thinking about it. Oh, very much so, um, yeah. Antoniadis went on to say that some of these people that they were sort of consulting with who were living with the symptoms, mm. when they were playing the game, they said that they didn't see much evidence of mental illness in the game. Oh, in the game. Yeah. They were sure. like, I, I don't really see... This is normal. And yeah, he was sure, like, sure. people with delusions of all sorts would argue the same thing, that they are not aware of their experience being abnormal in any way. Well, and that's what makes this so difficult. Yes. What, the, the what they tried to accomplish with this game is so hard, especially yeah. if you're going to use people who have those types of issues. Um, the, the way somebody with a psychosis will describe themselves to someone else is not the way that you would describe it were you to experience what they experience, right? right? Because it's a, it's a version of reality to them, which is true to some point for everybody. Um, we're all kind of projecting things onto things. And, right. you know, everything we see is a pattern, not the objective actual thing, you know? generally speaking. Yeah. Um, but it's just they're projecting more onto it than right. most people do. Yeah. And they're over-projecting. And we only say over-projecting because it's, it's abnormal. But that's essentially what's going on there. But they wouldn't describe to you um, objectively what they're going through because it, 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 it's difficult for them to see objectively what they're going through and to sort yeah. what's real and what's not. So they'll say, oh, oh, it's not a big deal or I, I don't, it doesn't bother me too much or... Maybe it does, but I'm always seeing this thing where in reality they're seeing many other things that yeah. are they, also they, there, but that they just aren't. They think that they don't attention. see it as a, yeah, yeah. an issue at all. Exactly. Yeah. And so you can't talk to them. You also can't talk to the psychiatrists. I mean, you can talk to them. Please talk to them. <laughs> but you can't just figure everything out from talking to them. You yes. can't figure everything out from talking to the psychiatrist or psychologist. You can't figure it all out from talking to the scientists, neuroscience, anybody, any of that. None of them can give you the full picture yeah. because those who experience it have too difficult a time conveying it to people who don't experience it. And then the people who are studying it are typically those people who don't experience it. Yeah. So you're in no man's land. But mm -hmm. I commend people who make an effort to try to understand this, which is what art is essentially. Yeah. It's taking something you don't understand super well and kind of making it into like a metaphor of sorts that, that is more understandable to more people. Yeah. And you're going to leave things out. You're going to get things wrong. But I think it's commendable that you even tried to do that in the first place. I think that's a good use of art. Yeah. Another interesting thing just about the development of the game to kind of wrap this up is uh, Melina Jurgens is the, the actress who portrays no, Senua. She was actually just that's the team's... That's a Scandinavian name, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Jurgen. She was just the team's video editor. She was not mm. like an actress or anything like that this oh, before really? this time. Oh wait, they, no, I heard about this. I heard about this. She was the editor and they, they had her stand in. Yes. She was just standing yes. in so they yeah. could get, you know, kind of perfect their uh, motion capture. Yep. They were kind of like, you know, testing it out. And she did such a good job yeah. portraying the character yes. in these in these stand-ins that she didn't realize she's being 
auditioned <laughs> the whole time. Did you and, know? Uh, go ahead. Maybe I shouldn't bring this up. But did you know John Heater was not supposed to be Napoleon Dynamite? I remember hearing that he wasn't. He was the he was in the 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 pretend what do you call it the ten minute Peluca the short film that was made oh, yeah. by Jared Hess and then he just kind of was they were gonna cast someone else Fox Searchlight was gonna cast someone else not him he he just happened to be in the little short film they ended up picking him because he was so he was so perfect but yeah. it was not supposed to be him they had a bunch of famous actors they were gonna use yeah. Yeah, kind of a that kind of thing happens. It's like lightning situation. in the bottle right. moment. It's just like they realize, oh, we've got exactly yeah. what we need right here. And it's not only that um, she was there at the right place at the right time. I'm sure that happens to a lot of people who don't notice it. It's that she also then chose to really reveal her talents oh, yeah. then and there, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So they could have had her stand in and she stood there and decided not to take it too seriously. Right. And then the role, it would have pa- everything would have passed right by her, you know? Yeah. But she decided to take it very seriously and that's what led to this. So right. That's crazy. Just like the, the exact right moment. But she won all kinds of awards. Yeah, yeah, this. she did. Because her performance is in very good. amazing in this game. Yeah. It's incredible. So, anyways, um, I'll get back to a lot of this. Is a lot of the red text I was talking about that addresses some of those uh, criticisms later. Oh, that you'll come to later. So okay. we'll come back to these. Um, but that more or less kind of wraps up like the the thought process. Again, I really encourage people to go watch that sort of behind the scenes feature. There's a lot more info in there, and it's really really good. A really good behind the scenes look of what they were trying to do. So um, let's uh, jump into uh, the game itself. So. It starts off with Senua kind of like rafting down a river in a little canoe, like a hollowed out, you know, just tree trunk canoe. Yeah, yeah. And um, we're sort of introduced to her by one of the voices that she hears, right? Yes. Like one of the personas, I guess. One, of, like I, I think they're called furies. That's like the yes, the term that the that the picked people are using for mm. these voices. So one of these furies that she hears is like introducing us. We're like one of the new voices or presences that sort of like follow her around. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what our the camera is like our first person look or view as we follow her around like these furies do. Yeah, And yes. so one of the furies She'll is, often look at us. Yeah, like yeah. directly in the camera yes. as, as if we're like there with her. And in many ways we are. We are one of the furies who... Our presence is governing her fate. Yes. That's how all video games are. But yeah. in this particular one, it's very interesting and so very important. This sort of like predominant theory among the many voices is like taking us under her wing and sort of introducing us and yeah. like welcoming us as one of like the new one of the new people. personalities of the <laughs> following her. Yeah. And sort of like getting us caught up, which I thought was pretty clever as a way of like, because it doesn't start from like the beginning of the story. The story is delivered in a very non-linear way. Um, So it kind of jumps around a lot into like different flashbacks or, uh, you know, like narrated sequences to describe what happened to her before she got here. We're Mm. coming like kind of right into the middle of things. So Senua has, at the beginning of the game, basically what we know is she has suffered some kind of tragedy. Um, and she has come seeking Helheim, which is like the the Viking hell, right, to uh, address whatever happened. That's basically all we know. Yeah. And um, 
So this voice will fill in a lot of the story. Then there's Druth, who was like a mentor of hers that she knew while she was in the wilds, that will fill in a lot of the story when he talks to her, when she hears his voice. Yeah, yeah. Then there's also legitimate flashbacks that you see that fill in a lot of that stuff. So there's all these different ways that they're going about filling in the holes of what happened leading up to how we got here. Yeah, yeah. And that's not told in any kind of linear way. It sort of jumps around a lot. So on a first playthrough, it can get easy to become a little lost as to like what the like thread of the story actually is. That was true for me, yeah. Um, so uh, upon a second playthrough, it, it gets easier to sort of like, you know, piece it together. Yeah. But let's just kind of reveal it as the game reveals it rather than starting from the beginning to end. So, anyways, I like this dialogue, though, when she's welcoming you. You know, hello, <laughs> who are you? Oh, it doesn't matter. Welcome. You're safe with me. I'll be right here, nice and close, so we can speak without alerting others. So it's like we're being secretive. They, she yeah. almost like she doesn't want Senua to hear that we're talking about yeah, her kind yeah. of a thing, right? Let me tell you about Senua. Her story has already come to an end, but now it begins anew. Um, so you hear these voices, though, saying, it's breathing. The head is breathing. She's getting closer. Dillion. So we don't know mm-hmm. who Dillion is. Right. We don't really know what they're talking about, but she is carrying on like a pouch on her back a skull. Yeah. It's like a wrapped up skull and she's got, got it like on her belt, hanging from her belt. Yeah. So these voices are kind of flying around. It's breathing. The head is breathing. You know, like they're just, it's really disorienting. My first time playing the game, I don't know if you played with headphones or not, but. I did. Okay. The first time I was playing it, um, this effect was like so well done that one of the voices kind of flew past my right ear. I was actually recording this. I like had a face cam on and I turned my head this way thinking (laughs) somebody was in the room trying to talk to me and I I like took off my headphones and I was like, wait, oh my gosh, they got me, dude. Like, (laughs) well, and they will continue to get you throughout the whole game. So it's, it's, really well done in in the fact that even though I knew I'm playing a game, even though I knew they're trying to create this effect of voice hearing, Mm. I still, it sounded like it was coming from my actual room, the space I was in. So they did that. They did such a good job with that. Um, So she said, this is a journey deep into darkness. There will be no more stories after this one which is kind of ironic because there's a Hellblade 2 coming out soon. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. We'll talk about that too, my feelings <laughs> on that. But. Gotta make that money. So she says, how rude of me. I never told you of the others. You hear them too, right? So you're hearing all these voices. Yep. They've been around ever since the tragedy. So they just refer to this tragedy that happened that sort of like changed everything for Senua. This was like a huge life-changing event, a terrible tragedy that happened to her and that's why she has come seeking Helheim, what the Northmen call Hell, right, H-E-L. Look around you and you'll see them, the drowned, the sick, the slain. Here they lie, rotting in the fields and rivers of Hell, but the dead don't always lie still here. There is not, uh, this is not a place of rest. What is she thinking? Um, anyway, she gets to the point where she kind of comes up to the shore and this voice is saying, oh, she heard us. There's no going back. 
Um, you know, I wonder, or there might still be time to get back in the boat and leave if you want to. And yeah, so yeah. She, she, kicks she kicks the boat away. away. Yeah. Like there's, I'm not, there's no possibility of turning back. I'm fully committed to mm -hmm. this journey that she's on, right? So why don't you join us, the voice says to us. Maybe you too have a part to play in this story. And that's how it gets started. So you're kind of coming up to, it's actually this image that you see on the back here. There's a big like building or structure that kind of looks like it has almost like a, a beak, almost like a bird-like looking head or something like that. Almost like a raven. Almost like a raven. Although it's not Valravin, Valravin's, because this bridge. You know, it kind of looks like a horse. Yeah, a little bit. It like looks a, like, like a, a horse, Trojan horse or something. Just it's missing yeah. a heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so she sees this. She's on this beach, and this bridge is what leads into Helheim. Right? Yeah. And so she's got to get onto that bridge and cross it, but it mentions um, that only the, only the dead can cross that bridge, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, she's going to have to figure out a way, being alive, to, like, get across that bridge and get in there. So that's kind of the first indicator they give you of, like, a goal. Like, we got to get across this bridge. And I, I, I connected this a little bit, because the documentary kind of does too with the, the part about the delusions, like coming to a conclusion about something even though you don't have like good evidence for it, right? And is like believing so much in that, being yeah, yeah. a part of like a symptom of psychosis. The voice says, there's no doubt about it, the source of darkness is in Helheim and the goddess Hela holds his soul there. Right. So she's there to go retrieve the soul of somebody named Dillian, right? Who was her, yeah. her beloved. This is actually the skull of the person that she's carrying on her yeah. back. So she's going into hell to save her beloved. And she believes like she can go into hell and like retrieve his soul. Yeah. She's like fully believing that this is possible. Mm. Right? Not only that, but the way to do it and how she's going about it. Yeah. She she has some idea that this will work. Right. Okay. Oh, I also thought it was kind of cool. It was just kind of a clever line that the, the, the narrator is saying that she forgot the name of the bridge. Um, but she doesn't forget that only the dead can cross it. So, like, the mm. function of it is, like, you have yeah. to be dead to get across this thing. I don't remember what it's called, but I definitely remember, like, what you need to do to get over it. You have to die, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so then... Well, and that's, that's a... An aspect of the human mind where we we'll, we'll, we know the use of things, yes. or we will often project onto a thing the use of the thing yeah. without knowing exactly what the thing is yeah. or what it's called. Right. But we know what it's there for, and that's part of seeing the world symbolic, symbolically, mm -hmm. more or less. Yeah, um, you know what things mean, but you don't really know what they are. But you know what they mean because yeah. they're speaking to you. You know. Right. Okay, so then we get introduced to Druth, because there's all these runes that are kind of scattered throughout the yep. world, and you go sort of examine those runes, and then Druth will talk to you, and he usually yeah. gives you some Norse mythology. Yes. It's like stories that he told her. He's not telling her now, she's remembering yeah. what he told her when she met him. So I'm just going to kind of like talk about this now, because um, I can't remember exactly when this is, when they say this, but... Anyways, they reveal this at some point a little later. But Druth was someone that she met while she was, as a gelt, that term we learned mm. earlier, right? She was yeah. sort of like, she went out into the woods to like, um, kind of like purge this curse from her, right? 
she suffers all these symptoms, she doesn't understand them, everyone sees them as a curse, like she's yeah. a cursed person. So she went out into the wilds to like purge herself of this curse. Mm -hmm. And she met him, Druth, out in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And she, he sort of helped her survive and was a companion to her and a mentor to her for a little while before he died of his severe burns and wounds that he had suffered mm -hmm. in his escape from the Vikings as a slave. Yeah. So he told her a bunch of stories about the Northmen, about the Vikings and their, their uh, religious practices and their mythology and yeah. their beliefs. Yep. So all of these- Because she, so she as a Pict was not um, part of the Viking tradition, the Viking yes, religion. Right. The Picts may have had some similarities, but they were not Norse Scandinavian by, by religion. Yes. So they didn't have the um, Thor and Odin and all that stuff. Yeah. So Actually, that's a good thing. I, I forgot I to didn't know up. that when I started playing the game. Yeah. I was like, oh, she's part of the Scandinavian. She's one of them. This is, this is just, she's, she's making contact with the gods of her culture, yes, right? But, but that's actually not the case. Right. Yes. She's going to the Northmen's gods. Yes, which explains a lot. And um, it also, maybe we'll get into later exactly why she's doing this, but it's important to understand that these are not her gods. Yes. Yes, they're yeah. not. And I'm glad that you brought that up, that the Picts were a separate thing. They had their own gods and own mythology. Because yeah, yeah. the, the inspiration for the name Senua came from a pretty recent discovery of oh, yeah. a Pict goddess named Senuna. Wow. But originally they thought the name was Senua, and, and Antonianus liked that name, so he just that kind okay. of is what stuck. But the actual that. name of the Pict goddess that they discovered mm -hmm. in the, their archaeological digs was Senuna. Senuna. So they had a goddess named Senuna, uh, the Picts did. And so that's where the name Senua comes from. Cool. Um, <clears throat> okay, so yeah, you'll see these runes scattered all throughout the world. You go examine them, and Druth will give you a like a little lesson or a little story yeah. about the the Norse gods. Um, so I want to talk about this a little bit, and we'll probably reiterate or go over this in a little more detail when we get into the criticism thing again in the next episode. But one thing that I think I've seen a couple people bring up, I think you even mentioned this, like what does this have to do? with the story, all these like Norse yeah. myths, like we, we're yeah. taking these like breaks to like have Druth explain these these uh, Viking Just stories. general stories about Ymir and, and it's like Odin. And what is this, how is this related to what's going on? Like how is this adding yeah. to the game? So. And especially early on, it just isn't that clear that those were things I needed to pay attention to at sure. all. It just seems like general history lessons and stuff. In, in like the broader sense, um, I don't think you need to necessarily know the details of these myths yeah. in order to understand the story. But I was, I was recently studying Beowulf a little oh, bit, yeah? just on my own time, because it's something that I'd always heard Tolkien was inspired by. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I had never really like looked into the story that much myself. I had like a vague idea of what it was about. I read it back 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't really like uh, look into it too much. Yeah. Um, one of the criticisms of Beowulf, kind of for a long time actually, was that it did a lot of like 
I don't know what you'd call it, like it would deviate from the story mm-hmm. to like explain like the yeah. cultural sort of like context or um, like some story about this god or that god or something like oh, that. Yeah. It would constantly sort of like divert from the story of Beowulf to like fill out the world and the context that surrounded Beowulf yeah. and this culture here or this city and it does a lot of deviations to like fill in details like that. I feel like in part Beowulf was um, influenced by Christianity a little bit yeah. in, in a way that kind of changed what the original story would have been. Sure. Uh, so they kind of are trying to circumvent um, the Inquisition, <laughs> which didn't come till later, I know. But they're, you know, they're trying not to offend the church at the time while still telling this important story of their culture, you know? Yeah. So that may lend to some of the oddities of the story. What I had read is that a lot of people criticize it because it, it, it does all this deviating from the story to like explain all this stuff that seems ancillary or not important to the story. Mm-hmm. And what people are, are sort of like interpreting that as now is an attempt to lend um, historical authenticity to the story itself. Oh, I see. So right. they were trying to explain it as a, as a literal historical event. Right, to make, it feel, to make the story feel like it has sure. historical authenticity. Hmm. Similar criticisms are made of the Lord of the Rings for all the songs yes, yeah. and like deviations yes, from deviations. like the story to like explain this culture's language or whatever yeah. or like how this to make land it feel came to be. More real. Yeah. And, um, you know, people might think that that's boring and mm. I, I'm not going to like fault you for feeling that way. But the purpose of it is not just oh, I thought of all of this stuff, so I want to put it in the book because I worked so hard on it. Right. It is to add a sense of historical authenticity mm. to the story. It feels like there's something that exists beyond just this immediate perspective we have of the person walking through this scene. Yeah. There's a world outside of it, outside of just these people. It feels bigger than just this scene we're looking at. Yeah, The world is alive. It is moving. There are cultures and people and things happening all over the place outside of just this scene. A lot of times um, the scale of something can feel small when it's too focused just on what's happening here on screen, so to speak. It doesn't feel like the world is alive around it. Mm -hmm. So you have to build that out somewhat, but obviously there's going to be different um, takes or uh, subjective thoughts on how much is like worth doing. Right. But that was kind of the point of, of, in both texts of doing that, was to kind of create this authenticity around the world and give it like a, a lived-in feel to it, right? Now, having been thinking about that recently, I feel like Senua is lending a sense of authenticity to the delusion she is living. Hmm. Interesting. She is focused and doing all of these trials and like going into the world of these foreign gods and like being immersed in this world because to her it needs to be real. Right. And this might be getting a little ahead of myself, Mm -hmm. but the whole point is that she doesn't want to deal with 
the loss that she has suffered with the death of Dillian. She's not willing to accept that loss yeah. yet. So in many ways, she's putting her own obstacles in front of herself. She's creating yeah. a journey. More things to do. That keeps yeah. her having a goal, a purpose, something to sure. aspire to, something to do, yeah. move. And the longer she's engaged in this, the longer she can delay mm -hmm. the reality that yeah. Dillian can't be brought back. So lending authenticity to the Norse gods and all of its history creates the sense that I can save Dillian from Helheim because Helheim is real and yeah. Hela is real and I all of this to. stuff is real. Yeah. And so she's fixated on these stories and on building this world of the Norse gods yeah. and lending authenticity to in it. In her own way. In her own mind. That's actually a really cool parallel. I yeah. like that a lot. That was like the sense that I got playing through it this time. It's like, what, what is the purpose of all of this stuff? Because what else is it for? Like, it's not necessarily related to Senua's journey, mm. but it does create this whole world around her because she's going into, like you said, these are not her gods. Yes. She, doesn't gr she didn't grow up being told about Odin and Thor right. and Hela and Loki and... Yeah. Uh, you know, Sig Sigurd and yeah, Sigurd all these Thor. characters. She doesn't know who yeah. they are. Druth knew them because he was a slave of he, the Vikings. He taught them to her. And he yeah. taught them to her. So he, she's cementing these stories and that you know what's he funny? told her in her mind. Assuming these runes are the extent to which Druth told her yeah. all of this stuff, everything else that's not included in these specific stories, everything else is added in. By, by her, yes, right? So every other thing that she's doing, every other thing that she sees is you got a, a story that's one paragraph long and she takes that paragraph and creates this big yeah. like world out of it. Right, yeah. and she creates trials to go I think through you're right about and that. like all of these things, like all these con conflicts she has yeah. to face and, and overcome. Um, who was it? Who's, um, well, he himself, Druth, ended up having to escape through fire in order to make his way and continue living. So yeah. then she has to then yeah. escape through fire. Yeah. And then um, there's a story about Odin who has to sacrifice in order to read the runes, in order to understand the, the voice of the gods. And so she's got her own sacrifice. That's why it's called Sinu's Sacrifice, I believe, is because it's paralleling with Odin's story. Yeah. And so she's got to make some sacrifice so that she can then get what she wants from the gods, right? Yeah. And so she create, but she has to make her own sacrifice and she has to make it. She has to determine what it's going to be. Yes. Right? For Odin, it was, uh, here's my eye. And yes. he hung himself from a tree upside down while stabbing himself <laughs> with a spear for like nine days while his blood dripped. And then he drank from the fountain of wisdom. And then the gods told him, revealed to him the runes. Right? right. But he had to give his eye first. Right. Anyway, so he kind of did that all. So she's making her own, her own version of that. Yes. That she's, this will be my sacrifice to the gods. Yes. And, um, but she's making it. She has to make it herself. Yeah, and a lot of this is influenced by the father who raised her. We'll get way more into him later. Yeah. But he talks about in several lines that the suffering mm. of life is like really important, right? Yes. Like like the going through the suffering. That's so actually she, Nietzsche. That's a Nietzsche yeah. kind of so argument. But she grew up with that mm. understanding that the sacrifice or the suffering is what's necessary 
and now she's going into this land of foreign gods and, and creating, trying to as much as possible believe that it is real, because if it's real, then she can save Dillian. If it's not real, she has to accept his death. Mm. And she's not willing to do that yet. She has yeah. not reached a point where she can, she can make that, she can accept that. Yeah, yeah. So she is using all the stories to create an, a, 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 a historical authenticity to the world she's creating in her mind. Yeah, that and makes sense. I think it really works with the theme too. That does, that does actually. And I really like that, I like that perspective. Okay, so you come into, so you, you meet Druth, he sort of, um, he, he comes, it's actually really cool the way they did this. They filmed actors. They're not yeah. like CG characters. At first I was like, that's good motion capture, <laughs> right? But it's because he was kind of blurried and you don't see him that well and he's kind of, he's he's being edited into the scene in, a, in an interesting way, right? Yeah. So I thought it was just motion capture. I'm like, wow, they got his eyes really good. Yeah. It kind of made her motion capture not look so good. And then I realized it's a yeah. video. It's just a video. And there's something, I think this is from me growing up with games in the 90s. Yeah. But when I see video of live action people in a game, it lowers the value, the production value, mm. the, the, my perceived quality of the level of the game gets lowered a little bit. Yeah. You used to see that in games a lot, where they'd right. put in video. And oh, yeah, I, I know the games you're talking I about. I never liked it. There are a lot of them, especially yeah. in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And games have really gotten away from that, in part because they don't need to. The graphics are good enough. Yeah. And this game put the video in, but and I didn't know it was video at first. It, I thought I was fine with it. And once I realized it was video, it lowered the value of, of the, not value, not the general value, but just the visual quality of what I was perceiving because video is like a cheap trick to make your graphics seem like they look really good. Yeah. And um, the way that they put I thought it was very interestingly done, but it, it nonetheless reminded me of why I don't really like video in my video games. I think that uh, this was probably a byproduct of the small scale yes, of and the game. I know that. That's yeah. my point, actually. <clears throat> That's what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> is that, oh, this was, this was this a cheap game made by a low-budget people. This exactly. wouldn't have been done this way had they had a $100 million budget exactly. or something. Right? And you don't notice their lack of a budget until you see that they used video in their game. And then, then, then it, it just screams, we didn't have enough money to make this game <laughs> at you. But I, uh, that being said, it was well done. The actors were great, yeah. and it looks good. I just have this weird aversion have, to that. They have a lot of filters and effects and yeah. things they use to try to blend it in yep. together. You can and especially tell, with her mother talking on the stones in the yeah. wall and elsewhere, mm -hmm. the way that they track her face to the mouth and to the way everything kind of seems, and, and it, it just blends. It's just very well done. Yeah. So anyways, she, she meets Druth here. He's like a spirit. Um, and yeah. so she says, it's good to see you again. You kept your vow. And he says, to guide you in this life and the next, I will tell you my stories of hell if I may walk with you. So it's like his mm. spirit's going to guide her through So she's Helheim. bringing him in. Yeah, bringing her with him or with her, bringing mm -hmm. him with her. Um, and he's going to act as her mentor or guide and kind of teach her about the things she's seeing and inform her about the the Northman's myths while she's experiencing them, right? Yeah. Um, th so you kind of go into this room where there's the door that opens up to the bridge leading into Helheim, and it's it's um, sealed. And it's sealed by two gods, 
uh, Valravin and Surt. Mm -hmm. And so she's going to have to go and defeat these gods in order to open this door and actually get in. But before that happens, um, we get introduced to the darkness, which is uh, what she was told by her father is the curse that follows her around and like mm -hmm. makes her see all of these things and hear all of these things. And now it has infected her. So he told her that she was infected with a rot, with, a, yes. with this darkness. Yeah. And it is infecting her arm. And they try to make this into a mechanic in the game where every time you die, the rot spreads further. Yeah. And if it spreads all the way up to the head, then there's a permadeath that happens. Yeah, yeah. And Senua will permanently die. Your game is over. You have to start the game over again. Yeah. This is a lie. Oh, really? This mechanic does not exist in oh, the game Oh, they at just all. say that. And this was a controversy to of the game. scare you. Yes. I don't know if that's controversial. Games lie to you all the time. Well, I'll tell you why. I guess other people felt this way. Early in the game, after Senua's uh, hand starts to rot because she got tainted, the darkness tells her that every time she dies, every death turns out to be a vision of a possible future, right? The rot will spread further up until it reaches her head and consumes her soul. The game implies that if this happens, it will result in a permadeath, as the player's uh, save would be deleted, and all the game progress until then would be erased. However, several media outlets later found out that the rot stops spreading after a certain number of deaths and cannot uh, progress uh, further before a certain point in the game, ultimately making it impossible for it to reach Senua's head. Antoniata said that the permadeath mechanic was a bluff. While the rot will spread on Senua's body over repeated deaths, it will never fully reach her head. The wording they chose to describe this was meant to convey part of the fear associated with mental illness and psychosis directly to the player. Hmm. So some of these people, again, that we'll talk about in next episode, describe feeling like they're going to die, you know, having this paranoia yeah. about death. and mm -hmm. That this was, the, the idea of this was to invoke that sense in you, the player, like there's a, sort of this impending doom coming. You, if you're not careful, mm -hmm. you're going to really die and lose your save progress and, you know, right. to start over again. That was like their attempt to do that. Um, I think a lot of people felt it was kind of clumsy. So, um, Reed McCarter of PC Gamer strongly defended Ninja Theory's move, uh, calling it great game design, a modern expression of unreliable narration. Yes, yeah, so it was the, un the unreliable felt. narrator. That's how I felt about it. And right? that was my point when I say games do this all the time. This is, this is a, a method of storytelling, is to give you a piece of information that's technically not true. Yeah. And you, it's, I don't think it's a big deal. So there were several outlets like PC Gamer and others that thought it was a clever decision, a cool trick. Um, I wouldn't go that far. Yeah. I don't think it was clever or cool. It was just, <laughs> it's just a thing, and I don't care either way. And um, some people really didn't like it, but I'll get into that in the criticism next okay. time. Okay. But I at least wanted to bring up that this death mechanic is not real. It's okay, a bluff that's make to, it's meant to make you feel and paranoid about I it. I actually wondered that. When I first read that, I was like, Really? <laughs> You're going to force me? Oh, that's it. I thought it was interesting, but I did kind of question whether it was real, like even right then. 
But uh, this, this, this ends up happening. She ends up getting infected like this because she tries to bargain with the darkness. So mm-hmm. like the darkness comes on her and she's like, oh, you took him from me. I beg you, let, me, or let him go. I'll do whatever you want. I won't resist anymore, you know, because mm-hmm. she's been resisting this darkness her whole life. Yeah. I won't resist anymore. Just give him back. So she's pleading and trying to like negotiate with the darkness and it affects her. It's like you don't get to, you don't bargain with the darkness. And that's what the voice, the narrator voice says, poor cinema, the darkness does not bargain. It does not reason. It is rot. And now it has taken hold and it will spread towards her head, the seat of the soul until there is nothing left of her. Which is why she's holding the Gillian's skull. head. Yeah, the skull. it's because that's yeah. the seat of the soul, the soul. right? So she's it's going like, to go get his head. soul back from hell. I'm going to put it back into the head. Yeah. Right, is the idea. Oh, but also, this is an interesting representation of the gods being something along the lines of like you're punished by the gods for doing certain things the gods don't show favor upon you they your 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 life is a certain way because you offended the gods right mm-hmm. by trying to bargain with the gods you offended them and they smite you with a curse and that is because you offended the gods um it's interesting when you put that in the context of a psychosis or an emotional situation right where you know carl jung would say something along the lines of a, that a god is something that rules your fate, right? That there's principalities and things that could be considered demons or angels, but it it rises to the level of a god when it controls your fate, Yeah. right? And her fate is is controlled by forces outside of her control. And they can, in some definitions, accurately be referred to as gods. And and, and you have to treat the gods properly, even if you're going to say, well, well, the gods aren't real. It's like, well... for her, they are 100% real, and you you have to treat them according to their rules, and because they govern your fate. Yeah. Anyways, it's just a different way of looking at it, I think. Yeah, for sure. So as she proceeds, you, you go, again, you can do it in either order. Valravan or Cert's trial first. I did right? Valravan first. Um, I think in my playthrough I did Cert first, but mm. in a waterfall you see Senua's mother, and she um, explains how she also saw visions. So this sort of yeah, implies that this too. is... A hereditary genetic, yeah. genetic thing that mm-hmm. Senua um, in, uh, inherited from her mother. I don't know how much at this yeah, time they would have. I mean, I, I, I'm sure they knew you inherit some traits from your parents. Right? They they did hair color yes. and you look like. I would say just general evolution. Yeah. Even if they didn't know scientifically, whatever um, animals deduce. What, who would be the proper mate or how to best survive. And yeah. that na- natural selection has a way of taking people who aren't fit and removing them yeah. from right. the group, right? right. And th- th- it happens in a social situation with her, with her father and everything. But um, it happens all, all through the animal kingdom. So I would say right. they for sure knew. In fact, there's a, gosh, there's a verse in the Bible that was, um, there's the blind man. And then the Pharisees, I think, bring the blind man to Jesus and they're asking, they're saying, who sinned, this man or his father, uh, that yes. he be cursed he with, this, cursed like with this, this It's almost situation. exactly the situation here. Yeah. I think it was well understood going very far back that you the children carry inherit. with them the, um, yeah, the, uh, what would you call it? The um, traits. Traits or, yeah. of the parents, the yeah. phenotypes, but also the sins of the parents and everything sure. else. It's all inherited. Right. So I, I suppose they probably would have suspected like that 
she yeah. got this from her mother. Especially when they practice things like shunning or ostracism. Yeah. That is with the express purpose of no longer including those genes in your gene pool. Right. Yeah. That's the so social utility of that. Her mother was this kind of priestess healer who also saw, had, you know, hallucinations and yeah. voice hearing, that sort of thing. So she had psychosis. Um, father did not and was some, also some kind of religious leader who was trying to purge his wife of this curse. Now, I, would, right? I do wonder about this from a historical point of view. Yeah. I feel like that may be putting a little too much of modernity onto the, onto the history. Whether he would have married somebody who... Yeah, whether she things. would have gotten married first of all. Yes, that's At a big all. question. Although yeah. certain forms of psychosis don't manifest until after your 20s. Like sometimes yeah. people with schizophrenia, it's onset at like 25. That's what they um, imply for Senua. It's yeah, like that late it came later. teens, okay, early yeah. 20s, that she really started to... The darkness really started I think to that's hold, common. Right? I think that's common. And yeah. that, that is common with things like depression and other yeah. things as well. So it's maybe her mother... Puberty. Ex started exhibiting these things after Later. she was married. Because remember, 800 AD, people got married. Yeah. Girls got married when they were like 13. Really young. Yeah, yeah. That was, that's when you get married, right? So she could even be a grandmother by the time she all of a sudden starts getting these symptoms of um, schizophrenia or something like that, right? Because yeah, right. sometimes it can happen that late. Um, but also, what was it? Hold on, hold on. I had another thing. I had the other thing. So it comes on late. Oh, the other idea. So there's a book called... Um, well, it's written by Mircea Eliade, and it's called The Sacred and the Profane, but he also wrote a book just called Shamanism, just in general. It was people like this who would often be seen as shamans in a tribe, yeah. not in the negative sense, that they would be... Um, I don't think this was always, and so you know, it's possible something like this would still have happened, um, but often... Shamans of a tribe would be people who exhibited hallucination type, um, you know, what would you call it? They would see hallucinations, right? People who were like this were sometimes, though not always, considered prophetic. And if this woman had been around for this long, had children, and was part of the religious tradition, would they have ostracized her for having hallucinations of this sort or of any sort? Um, shamans typically tended to do drugs in order to elicit these types of hallucinations. Oh, sure. Like they would often, like they would often try to have these visions, and and the people would often defer to them and leave them alone while they were having uh, an episode of of sorts. So, anyways, yeah. I I just I don't know one hundred percent that that's for sure what would have happened in this situation, but I do feel like. If that were to happen today, or maybe 200 years ago, that this would be an accurate thing sure. that would have happened. Then the husband would come in and, no, this isn't right. And But I don't know if that's accurate to 1,000 years ago yeah. and how things worked back then, especially sure. with the shamanic tradition. So anyways, I'm not criticizing and saying I know better. I'm just questioning yeah. uh, how accurate that is historically. I took down this line here. Hell will not give you the answers you want, but you mustn't look away from the horror it does offer because you cannot overcome suffering if you refuse to look at it. Okay. So this is the idea about the suffering this being is, a requirement. Yes. It's uh, exposure therapy. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. You have to, if you're afraid of snakes and it's ruining your life, you have to not be afraid of snakes now. So you will see a psychologist who will then help you get 
see snakes and get closer to them. And by exposure to the thing, you yeah. learn to not be afraid of it right. oh, after a while. This is how you treat people with agoraphobia and all sorts of things. So there's also the idea um, that the brass serpent was this kind of situation, that you search for the meaning and the suffering. Um, oh, no, no, sorry. I read, I'm reading the wrong line here. It's, uh, you cannot overcome suffering, suffering if, if you, you refuse, refuse to, to look at, at it. it. Yeah. That, in part, is the brass serpent of Exodus, or I think it's in Numbers, actually, but in, in the Bible, the story of the brass serpent, that Moses puts it up, and there's a plague, and the snakes are hurting the people, and wh- what do we do about this? These snakes are infecting our society, and there's a, there's a problem, right? So Moses gets a brass serpent and says, look at this. Look at it. Yeah. And people stare at it. And the idea being that if you look long enough and if you look hard enough at the thing that will kill you, at death, if you look at death and stare it down and look at it long enough and hard enough and really contemplate it, you will find the antidote to be found there. Just like the yin and yang, there's a little circle within each side that has the opposite. If you look into the darkness long enough, eventually you find that point, the the light. light. You'll see the light and and if you focus on the light and if you look hard enough, it it begins to grow until eventually it consumes the darkness and you're left with nothing but light, Mm -hmm. right? And that's the idea of like focusing on death. And that's, that's, um, would also be likely the connection between the brass serpent of the Old Testament and then Christ on the cross, right? Sure. You look at you you focus on the cross, you look at the death and from that you find the the life and the resurrection and all of that stuff. So Right. Um let's see, Druth goes on to say here, the Northmen made fire sacrifices burning slaves like me to reveal the path to Sirt. I searched for meaning in their suffering in their eyes, but they just screamed like helpless pigs. So the Vikings were going around burning people, making sacrifices to their god Sirt. And so Senua has to go through several fire trials here. Um, kind of like you said, passing through the fire kind yeah. of a thing. And I think one of the stories that we hear from the guy, I'm, gonna be, I'm bad with names anyways, Do, 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 Druth? Druth? Druth. Druth is his story about passing through fire. Yeah. And it's around this time that we learn about that story. And he, but it's a rebirth story. This is, this is the beauty to be found here. It's, it's a rebirth story. So um, he talks about how he even got a new name after he went through this trial. He used to be Finnand? Finden. Finden. Yeah. He used to be Finden, but once he went through this situation, and it's a baptism by fire kind of situation, because right. baptism represents a rebirth. But he had to it's keep... so funny because it goes right into this quote. <laughs> oh, perfect. Well, this is great. So he had to pass through the fire where he essentially died and was reborn. He was yes. baptized through the fire into a new life where he, he um, chose for himself a new name, and he then became Druth. And as he was reborn with a new lease on life and ready to do anything, he chose to live a different kind of life than he was living previously. Right. But the same thing happens with her. So she runs through the fire, and by the end, because I she, think you have to do it multiple times. burns. By the end, she burns, but what happens when she's on the ground burnt? It slowly peels away, and I think there's even text on screen. Someone's talking to her saying, you have been reborn. Through yeah. this process, you are now reborn. You right. are a new person, and you're a better person, and you yeah. can choose your own fate. And that's when she fights Sirt yes. and defeats him. Yeah. And the quote from the narrator after that, after mm. you've defeated Sirt, is, have you ever died before? There you go. It's a serious question. When the illusion of self is shattered, you simply cease to be. Yeah. Thought it may not seem, although it may not seem that way to others, you know when it is true. 
You can feel it, a stranger in your own body, an imposter, and nothing is the same ever again. Senua died before, and she will do so again. You can be sure of that. Yes, yes. Yep, that actually, that quote comes up again later, I swear. Yeah, Senua has died, and she will do so yet again. I can assure you of that. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful line. She is constantly dying. That, this, is, this is her life. She is constantly in a state of dying and being reborn. Yes. But through, through fire, which is um, the symbol of fire in the runes, in the ancient Norse runes, the symbol for fire actually means transformation, right? Yeah. And because the fire is what you use to make, to turn iron ore into a sword, you know? And so fire being transformation, as she passes through the fire, she literally transforms. Right. Um, and I think those are the runes that you collect during that process too, are the runes for fire. Right. And yeah, so, exactly. But this is constant for her. She's constantly dying. And I think this is true for everybody. We're constantly letting our former selves die and are allowing ourselves to be remade in a new way going forward over and over all the time. Right. That's just yeah. a metaphor for life in some ways. Yeah. So that pretty much wraps up the trials of Cert and the battle against Cert. Yeah. Next is Valravan. Which I really like this section of the game. I think Valrav is just a very cool god. Yeah, pretty cool. Like yeah. a god of illusions. Sure, and, yes, illusion. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting that we fight that god first. Yeah. You would think that would be one of the light, later gods, right? Yeah. Because if she's going to overcome the, if she's going to conquer the illusion, right, you would think that after conquering the illusions that she can now no longer be subject to them. They no longer rule her fate. The god yeah. of the illusions is no longer one that binds her and subjects her. Um, but she's still clearly seeing illusions throughout the entire game. So I don't know if it's saying what I thought it was saying. I thought that it was telling us that she was overcoming the illusions, the yeah. way that she overcame the fire. Um, but I feel like it must be saying something else because She's definitely still, <laughs> you know, <laughs> subject to the fate of the god of illusions, let's say. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I put this note here. This is pretty similar to what I was saying earlier, but all these rituals and trials and mythology and pareidolia puzzles yes. are distractions, a subconscious diversion to give herself a purpose and a goal to work toward and delay having to accept that Dillian is gone. It's just like yeah. she's, That's an she's interesting pushing that it. thing further, not consciously. Subconsciously. Subconsciously. Yes. Pushing yes. that moment where she's going to have to deal with that further and further and further down by creating uh, with, uh, you know, stimuli that she's legitimately having and has had all her life. All the hallucinations and the voice hearing and all these things she sees, right? All of this is being used to create this world of the gods of the Northmen, mm -hmm. and, and having to battle through this is just kicking the can down the road further yeah. and further and further to not have to actually deal with the problem she's going to have to deal with. Right. And it keeps her mind occupied, and it keeps her coming through suffering and a, a noble goal and overcoming mm -hmm. and like feeling like she's progressing and moving. It's all an avoidance of acceptance, of I, reality. I think there's something to that, a especially break. as she tries to cross this bridge here. Yeah. Um, essentially, it's that she knows she's not ready. Yeah. And so she allows herself to be defeated by her own unconscious mind. Yes. And it's an interesting way to look at things. P 
people do this all the time, by the way, but it's just more obvious in someone who has psychosis yeah. that, that they are creating their biggest obstacles, but it's not so obvious. People do that all the time. Right. And again, the creativity part of the mind being yeah. like hyper hyperactive, active, yeah, yeah. right? They are literally creating this. This is not something like malfunctioning. It's hyper-functioning, mm-hmm. but it's not, they're not in control of it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, anyways... Fascinating stuff, but... Well, I I really like the perspective stuff because in part, she has taught herself or this is a truth of the world, which either one is is, uh, acceptable, I think, that what she needs to do to progress in life is find a different perspective, right? To go somewhere else and to to pick a different way of looking at things until she can find what she's looking for, essentially. And I think that can still, that's still compatible with what you're saying. Right. Um, But at the same time, she needs to find validation in nature. Yes. So she's like, I need to do this thing. I think I need to do this thing. So let me go out and experiment on my hypothesis and see if that's correct. And lo and behold, the tree fell and then this tree's here. And if I stand here, I can see the symbol. So Mm -hmm. that means that my hypothesis is correct. That's what she would conclude from that. The hypothesis was correct that I need to find this symbol in the world. And and that keeps it going. So while she's doing these uh, illusion puzzles and trying to work her way through this labyrinth of Valravan, right? There's a lot of narration here that details her time in the wilds and uh, as a gelt and meeting Druth and you know almost giving into the darkness, but Dillian's words bringing her back. A lot of these details about her background are sort of like filled in here. You know, she was exiled. Um, she was blamed for a lot of the. The plagues and yeah, like I'd, things. Yeah, I put a whole thing there for that. Yeah, like uh, yeah. because of her curse, right? Everyone yes. believed that she was there, cursed. There was a plague in the village and because she was cursed. And You yeah. know, the word plague doesn't mean today in 2022 <laughs> what it meant mm. uh, a long time ago. In fact, I actually put, I threw up a couple definitions of the word plague. Um, so in Old French... A plague means affliction, calamity, evil, scourge, severe trouble, or vexation. And mm. then in Swedish, which is a Scandinavian language, um, plague, plaga, means curse, torment, pain, terror, worry, etc. Things like that. Yeah. So when people say there's a plague in our city, they're not necessarily, they could be, but they're not necessarily referring to a pox or... Yeah, COVID. (laughs) Yeah, they're not referring to a disease necessarily. It could be, but it could also be a cultural rot. Like something Uh, has seeped into our culture that is destroying it from within. And this is where Rene Girard, he has a lot to say about this. Um, Do we want to talk about the plague thing now or is that something that comes up later? Um, Well, it does come up a little bit later because there's that whole uh, trial of like the, that like swampy... Uh, part mm-hmm. uh, that comes a little bit later. So I can do One of the trials later. of Odin. So yeah. let's talk about it in the okay, trials perfect. of Odin. One of the four. Um, anyways, it, it details her promise that she made to Dillian, right? Because she's like, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go in the wilds. He's like, no, trying to dissuade her from doing it. But he's like, okay, well, if you're going to go, you've got to promise me that you'll come back. And so yes. she makes the promise, and that's what keeps her going and fighting yeah. the darkness and not giving into it. And then she meets Druth out there. Um, now, Druth tells his whole story to her right as before you get to the, the fight with Val Ravan, right? His uh, father sent him to pay for his sister's release who had been captured by the Northmen. Mm-hmm. They take his money and 
cap, put him in captivity for one day, then they release him. Yeah. He goes back. His father's enemies had raided and killed his father and his brother. Mm -hmm. And then they pretended to be giving recompense to him for this, but then they betray him and turn him over to the, the Vikings and they enslave him for a long time. But through fire, he escaped his whole baptism yeah. by fire thing happened. He became a different person. Uh, he talks about how he was a coward, right? Um, but he, you know, he never saw his sister again, he says. And though Findon never set eyes on his sister again, I, Druth, have found you, Senua. So he almost mm. saw her like a little sister, right, while he was out there in the wilds with her. I see. Um, so as she's working her way around there and hearing all these stories, she breaks the seal of Valravin and then darkness overtakes her and Valravin lunges at her and she sort of uh, loses consciousness. And when she wakes up, she's in the dark. She doesn't understand what's going on, but she's being pecked at by uh, Valravin yes. in the background. Yes. And it's like she's being eaten alive, mm -hmm. right? by this raven god. And she feels so helpless. She's losing. Because the god of illusion holds that much power over yes. her. She can do right. nothing and she just lays there helpless while it is eating her. Yes. There's like great symbolism in that. And she's like losing her resolve. She's giving in to the darkness, but she yeah. hears Druth calling to her. Um, oh, oh, first the narrator's I think talking to us. I'm still here, are you too? Where are we? Oh. I remember it didn't end well in the wilds, it never does. She had encountered Valravin in her wilds oh, previously. experience. Oh, I didn't know that. Right, so, and she kind of mm. speaks directly to him. So Because it never does. Obviously, so when she heard about Valravin, probably from Druth himself mm. in her time, with, it became she a thing. started to hallucinate Valravin sure. in the wilds, right? Interesting. So she had encountered this, this is the one god she had encountered before. And it's the god of illusion. So this yeah. is one of that ruled her fates. Exactly. That's interesting. Um, it didn't end well. It didn't end well in the wilds. It never does. You think you can overcome the darkness, make sense of it, and once relief settles in, it strikes out of nowhere, throwing you helplessly back into the maelstrom, drowning you in or drowning the mind in fear, deeper, deeper, dragging you down so far into the void that maybe this time there is no coming back. But there in the darkness, she remembered what he told her. And then Druth is, Senua, hear me, reach out to me. Senua, like, take the iron mirror. So this is where you get the, this mirror, right? Yes, It gives yes. you some abilities in the That's combat right, and things yeah. like that. Look into it. It's a window into the underworld. Within, you'll see the face of the darkness that you fear. And if you focus, like you were talking about, mm -hmm. like I have taught you to, you will also see that as much as the darkness has trapped you within its veil, it too is trapped within yours. Focus, focus, focus. And then she's able mm. to break the darkness and she has the fight with Valravin. And she says, I yeah. see you. I see you now. You led me into the wilds and you trapped me there. Um, I never beat you in the wilds, did I? It was an illusion, but not this time. And this fight's really cool. I think it's actually my favorite fight in the game against Valravin. Well, the way... The way we end up dispatching him is pretty yeah. sweet. It's really cool. <laughs> just like knock but, him on the ground and then stab him through the mouth. Just like, like oh. just the, 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 I don't know, just the flow of it. He'll like disappear so, and then like appear over here and like lunge at you and then yes. he's like throwing stuff and you yeah. deflect it back at him and it's just a really dynamic fight. It's a really fun fight. And Valravin it, itself is a very cool design. A very cool, yeah. Um, this is one of my favorite sections of the game. The whole Valravin part is just awesome. It's dope. Um, but she finishes it off, right? Kills it. 
and both of the seals are now released so that the doors to Helheim can be opened. The doors to hell. Yes. And there's an important line from the narrator here. She says, in those dark winter nights in the wilds, there were times when she considered letting go. If it weren't for Druth, a chance encounter in the wild, she would not have heard his stories of the Northmen, and she would not have had this chance to find Dillian's soul. There you go. She wow. almost let go. She almost accepted. Mm -hmm. She almost gave in. But Druth telling her all the, the, the stories of the gods and the Northmen gave her, hope. Gave her an idea <laughs> that she has yeah. held on to and is now making real in her mind, right? It's like... Anyways, I thought that was really nice, like, foreshadowing to the theme of the game, right? Um, yeah. On the way out, she sees her mother's face again. Uh, she taught Senua to see the weave that binds the world together, and it was beautiful. It was a time before the darkness, but when it did come, it came first for her mother. Senua still sees her face from time to time, hidden in the world, like she is still watching over her. She misses her so much. So... Her mother, this is where she it's revealed that her mother died. She was overtaken by the same curse or the yeah. same darkness, right? But they're um, saying it came first for her, so that is a, a late onset yes. of the symptoms. Right. And I, I just love that she sees her mother in nature, mm -hmm. which is, I mean, correct in terms of the human experience of yeah. the um, dichotomy of the male-female you know, masculine, feminine way of seeing the world. And then her father is the tyrannical <laughs> mm -hmm. force in her mind, something along the lines of a superego that is, you know, she has to overcome. And that is also accurate <laughs> to, you know, the role of a father historically and where she would likely have put those two yeah. uh, positions. And um, I think it's beautiful. I think it's very well done. Yeah. So this is the point where you can open the doors and cross the bridge. But this is where we said we were going to stop yeah. uh, for today. So that's it for this week. Um, join us again next time and we'll finish our sort of like analysis and summary of the game. And then we'll get into some discussion about, you know, whether or not this depiction of mental illness is was perfectly well done accurate and, and uh, all that. Or whether or not it warrants death threats. Whether or not it warrants death threats. We'll work through that. I don't know. We'll talk about that next time. Thanks, everybody. Peace out. Have a good week.